Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. John chapter 5 for time of study in the Word this morning. We're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John, and as we continue in our study of this Gospel, we come to John 5 verse 31. And my goal today is to try to cover uh, verses 31 through 47, and the title of the message is A Jury on Trial. A Jury on Trial. If you're taking notes, write down this reference, Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, the law says, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. And we actually see that elsewhere in the Old Testament and, and something similar to this even showing up in the New Testament. This provision in the law is very much relevant to the situation that Jesus finds himself in here in John chapter 5. As we have seen, Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath day, and he told that man to pick up his sleeping bag and to walk, which was a significant violation of the man-made rules of Judaism uh, in Jesus' day. So we learned in verse 16 that the Jewish religious leaders began persecuting Jesus for his violation of their religious code. And in response to this persecution, Jesus said to them in verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. And upon hearing these words from Jesus, the religious leaders now want to kill him even more. Because he not only has healed a man on the Sabbath and told that man to carry his sleeping bag, but now he's talking like he is an equal with God. Well, we saw last Sunday how Jesus responds by declaring to these religious leaders some truths about himself, and that is that he is the Son of God and He is the Son of Man, and that He is the one to whom the Father has given to uh, give judgment or to judge all men. He is the one whose voice will call forth the dead and direct them to their eternal fate. And Jesus tells them that He is the one that the Father wants all men to honor in the same way that they honor the Father. We got a hint last Sunday from verse 28 that the religious leaders were stunned by the audacity of the claims that Jesus is making about himself because Jesus has to say to them, literally, stop marveling at this. Stop marveling at what I'm saying, he He's essentially communicating here. So given this angry amazement that Jesus would have observed from these men, Jesus now in our passage today begins to back up his claims by calling forth witnesses to show the men in his audience that his claims about himself are truly valid. 
Only Jesus does this with a twist. At the beginning of Jesus' words, beginning in verse 31, uh, as we're going to see in just a moment, it seems that Jesus' enemies are the jury. And Jesus is the defendant. And it will seem to us that Jesus is calling forth witnesses who can validate his claims about himself and perhaps keep the religious leaders from killing him. But by the time Jesus is finished saying what he's going to say in our passage today, it will become clear that Jesus is not the defendant. Instead, he is the judge and the members of his audience are actually the ones on trial. And they are the ones whose lives are in grave jeopardy, for they are guilty of ignoring the truth about Jesus, and they're guilty of ignoring multiple witnesses to the truth about Jesus. So maybe you're here this morning and you're trying to figure out what you think of Jesus Maybe you are taking measure of him to see if he is worthy to be your savior. I want you to know that you are doing the right thing to examine and scrutinize Jesus. And I want you to know that Jesus welcomes your scrutiny of him. But I also want you to know that you are under his scrutiny too. You are more on trial than you realize, and he is your judge. And it is only by embracing his scrutiny of you that you can even begin to understand why you need him so desperately as your Messiah. My hope is that we will all see something of the mechanics of Christ's scrutiny of us and how he responds to his enemies in our passage today. And the way we're going to break down our study of this passage is we're going to observe seven pronouncements that Jesus makes to his enemies who reject him as Messiah and are wishing to kill him. And the first of these pronouncements, we can word it this way, Jesus essentially says, I have another witness who testifies about me. I have another witness who testifies about me. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 31. By the way, this first point is going to be a very quick point. Uh, he says, if I alone testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Jesus is not saying here that his words are not true or that there's even a chance that they're not true if he were the only one speaking them. What he's acknowledging here, though, is that his hearers would have just cause to consider his testimony untrue if there were no other witnesses whom God had provided to back up his claims about himself. Thankfully, Jesus is not the only one who gives testimony about himself. In verse 32, he says, there is another who testifies of me, and I know that the testimony which he gives about me is true. Now, Jesus 
in the moment does not state who this other witness is, but whoever this witness is, he is right now in the process of testifying about Jesus, and Jesus knows with absolute certainty that the testimony that this unnamed witness is giving is absolutely true. Most commentators that you will read will agree that Jesus is speaking of God the Father here in verse 32, yet it's obvious that Jesus intends to keep his audience in suspense for right now and refrain from revealing the identity of this surprise witness until later in this passage. Jesus' only burden here in Verses 31 and 32 is to let his enemies know that he's not alone in his testimony about himself. There is another who bears witness about him. And this witness actually, we're going to find out, lies at the back of all the witnesses that Jesus is going to be pointing to in the verses to come. The first of which is John the Baptist, which leads us to the second pronouncement that Jesus makes to his enemies who wish to kill him. Number two, John, Jesus is saying, testified about me, but you only rejoiced for a while in his light. John the Baptist testified about me, but you only rejoiced for a while in his light. Listen to what Jesus says to this audience of enemies Beginning in verse 33, he says to the religious leaders, you have sent to John, speaking of John the Baptist, and he has testified to the truth. And Jesus here is referring to the delegation of priests and Levites that was sent out by the religious leaders of Jerusalem to John the Baptist back in John chapter 1 and verse 19. And when this delegation came upon John the Baptist in the wilderness, they asked him, who are you? And John the Baptist answered and denied that he was the Messiah, yet he spoke of another person who is coming, who is so great that John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie the strap of his sandal. Ultimately, John the Baptist goes on in John chapter 1 to point to Jesus and say that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist pointed to Jesus as the one upon whom the Spirit descended as a dove. And he pointed to Jesus as the very Son of God. And we saw all this when we studied the latter portion of John 1. And it is these things that this delegation learned from John the Baptist about Jesus that Jesus is speaking about here in verse 33 when he says to these religious leaders, you have sent to John and he has testified to the truth. In other words, the truth about me. But before Jesus says any more about John the Baptist's testimony, he throws in a quick qualification. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 34. He says, But the testimony which I receive is not from men, 
But I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus is saying to these men who hate him, essentially, you must know that I don't need John the Baptist's testimony in order to know who I am, nor do I need to cite his testimony to prove to you who I am. I have other witnesses who are greater than John the Baptist, but I will remind you of John the Baptist's testimony for your sake. Look at the end of verse 34, so that you may be saved. What mercy this is that Jesus would speak to men who want to kill him and to speak to them with the hope that they might actually be saved through the words that he is speaking to them. I think some of us probably wouldn't be that interested in their salvation. Jesus is. And what confidence Jesus is displaying here. Uh, this is superhero kind of talk. These are powerful men who have surrounded Jesus. Essentially, they want to kill him. And they're probably thinking that Jesus ought to be focused on saving himself from their intentions. But instead... Jesus is saying to these men, no, you are the ones in grave danger here, not me. And I'm saying what I'm saying to save you because you're the ones who need the saving. What confidence we see here in Jesus. But with this qualification being stated, speaking about John the Baptist, Jesus continues in verse 35 and says he was the lamp that was burning and was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. The language that Jesus is using here uh, almost certainly is drawn from Psalm 132, verses 16 and 17. Psalm 132, verses 16 and 17 in Psalm 132, 17, God speaks and says, I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. And the Hebrew is, I have prepared a lamp for my Messiah. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, God is saying, I have prepared or set up a lamp for my Christ. And interestingly, the Greek word translated rejoice here in John 5.35 is used in the Greek translation of Psalm 132.16, where just before God says, I have set up a lamp for my Christ, Psalm 132.16 says, her priest also I will clothe with salvation and her godly ones will rejoice. And that's the same Greek word that Jesus is using here. So through this passage in Psalm 132, 16 and 17, God is foretelling a day when he will ignite a lamp for his Messiah and his godly ones will rejoice in the light of this lamp and so when Jesus here in our passage today is using this very language of this psalm, 
Here in verse 35 of John 5, Jesus is telling his audience that John the Baptist was that lamp and that he himself, Jesus, is the Messiah that John shined his light upon. And Jesus says to his enemies here, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. In his mercy, Jesus here, I think, is stirring the memory of these men to perhaps a better moment when they actually rejoiced in the light of John the Baptist's testimony concerning the Messiah. Perhaps, as Jesus is even right now speaking these words, some of these men will remember how they were initially stirred in their hearts by John's testimony and maybe even filled with joyful wonder over what it might indicate about the coming Messiah. And Jesus looks at these men and he cares about their souls. And he says, you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Remember? But notice those words. For a while. For a while. Evidently, their interest in John the Baptist's ministry and message was short-lived as they began to realize that the Messiah he was announcing was not the kind of Messiah that they were interested in. They were looking for a Messiah who would praise them like the people did and deliver them from Rome not some Messiah who would criticize them and offer to be a lamb who delivers them from their own sins. And that's Jesus' indictment of these men, that they only rejoiced for a while in John the Baptist's light, rejecting that light when they realized that the Messiah that John was promising was different from the kind of Messiah that they wanted. Again, keep in mind that Jesus does not personally feel like he needs to cite John the Baptist's testimony in order to validate his own testimony regarding himself, but he's simply doing so here in order to stir the hearts of these men to remember a better moment when their hearts were more open than they are now. But having done that, Jesus moves on to a greater witness than John, greater witnesses, plural, one of which is the miraculous works that he is doing. And this leads us to the third pronouncement that Jesus makes to his enemies who wish to kill him. Number three, essentially Jesus says, my works testify that the Father sent me. He's calling forth his works as a witness to the truth that the Father sent him. Listen to what he says in verse 36. But the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. Up to this point, Jesus has turned water into wine, 
at a wedding in Cana. Near the end of chapter 2, we saw that Jesus performed many unnamed miraculous signs in Jerusalem that caused many to believe in him, at least on some level. In chapter 4, we saw Jesus heal a royal official's son from a fatal sickness, and he accomplished that healing from 18 miles away. And now in this chapter, Jesus has healed a man who's been sick and lame for 38 years. And Jesus, here in our passage today, is speaking to these men, and he's saying to them that the works that he is doing amount to greater testimony about himself than the testimony of John the Baptist. He's telling these men that these are works that the Father gave him to do, and that they testify to the fact that the Father sent me, Jesus says. Yet these religious leaders are not hearing that message. In fact, rather than looking at the work that Jesus has just performed in healing this man who had been lame for 38 years and then realizing what that healing says about his own divine greatness, they're wanting to kill him for breaking their man-made Sabbath regulations. And that's part of Jesus' point here. He's saying, you know these works that I'm doing that are making you so mad? They are witnesses that are testifying to the truth about me. The Father has given me these works to accomplish, and these works testify to you that the Father has sent me. If you will but hear what these works are saying. Given this double connection of his works to the Father, it is not surprising that Jesus would speak next of his Father's testimony and thereby reveal the identity of his surprise witness whom he spoke about in verse 31. And this leads us to the fourth pronouncement that Jesus makes to his enemies who wish to kill him. Number four, we can word it this way, Jesus conveys, the Father testifies about me, but you don't embrace his testimony. The Father testifies about me, but you don't embrace his testimony. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 37. And the Father who sent me, he has testified about me. When we think of the Father's testimony that Jesus is speaking about here, we probably should want to understand it as broadly as possible. Jesus is almost certainly referring to the works that the Father had given Jesus to do. In addition to that, Jesus is likely referring to the Father speaking audibly from heaven at Jesus' baptism when he spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is likely also referring to how the father uses his spirit to bear witness to people's hearts regarding the truth about Jesus. And it is also likely that Jesus is referring to the scriptures 
which originate from God and bear testimony about Jesus. And it would also seem likely that Jesus is referring here to John the Baptist, who is described earlier in John chapter 1, verse 6, as a man sent from God. So all in all, it's likely that Jesus is referring to all of these means by which the Father has given and is giving truthful testimony about Jesus. But here's the problem. Beginning in verse 37, Jesus says to these religious leaders who hate him, look at verse 37, you have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe him whom he sent. Notice the three indictments that Jesus utters here, and the three indictments all seem tied to the fact that they did not believe him whom the Father had sent. Jesus says, you have neither heard his voice at any time. You've neither heard nor hearkened to his voice at any time. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have not recognized that it was his voice speaking to you through all of the means by which he has been speaking at my baptism, through the Old Testament scriptures, through John the Baptist, through the works that the Father is doing through me, and through the words that I am speaking to you, and through the Spirit bearing witness to your own hearts. Jesus is saying here, God's voice is speaking to you through all of these means, but at no point have you hearkened to his voice so as to repent and believe. Jesus then says, you have neither seen his form. In John 14, Jesus will speak to Philip and will say to him, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jacob saw God in a particular expression when I think the pre-incarnate Christ wrestled with him through the night in Genesis 32, and Jacob marveled at how he had seen God face to face and lived to speak about it. Moses was said to speak with God face to face, and in Exodus 34, he was actually allowed to see God's glory pass before him. Isaiah saw the Lord on his throne in Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to learn later in John chapter 12 and verse 41 that what Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 was Jesus' glory. But these religious leaders are privileged to have Jesus Christ right in front of them and actually see the face of God in Jesus, who is himself the exegesis of God, according to John chapter 1, verse 18, and yet they don't recognize him as God. Jesus also says in verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. Joshua 
in the Old Testament, meditated on God's word day and night. The psalmist did as well. Even Jeremiah had God's word abiding in him, so much so that he felt like it was burning, like a consuming fire within him, setting his bones ablaze. Yet these men are not allowing the words of the Father to abide in them. The Father has spoken and borne abundant witness to them about Jesus through a whole variety of means, yet these men have refused to embrace that testimony and allowed that testimony to have a home in their hearts. All things considered, Jesus is saying to these men who hate him and want to kill him, you men are not like Moses And you are not like Jacob, and you are not like Joshua and the psalmist and the prophets. They would have loved to have seen and heard the things that you get to see and hear. Here I am, the very Son of God, God in the flesh, standing before you and speaking to you. And you are not recognizing the Father's voice and all that I speak, nor are you recognizing his form in me as I stand before you and live among you, nor are you allowing his words coming through me to abide in you. And why is all this the case? At the end of verse 38, Jesus says, for you do not believe him whom he sent. Jesus is saying, the reason I know these three things are true about you, that you have neither heard his voice nor seen his form nor have God's word abiding in you is because you do not believe me whom the Father sent. Speaking of the Father's word abiding or not abiding in them, Jesus goes to that topic next, which leads us to the fifth pronouncement that Jesus makes to his enemies who wish to kill him. Number five, essentially Jesus is going to say, the scriptures testify about me, yet you won't come to me. The scriptures testify about me, yet you won't come to me. Listen to what Jesus says to these religious leaders who hate him in verse 39. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says. In the Greek text, uh, the beginning of this verse could be worded as a command, wherein Jesus is commanding these men to go and search the scriptures Um, Or it could be worded as just an observation that Jesus is making, a statement of fact about them. And that's how the New American Standard translation translates this, where he's just observing, you guys search the scriptures. It's what you do as religious leaders. And we'll roll with that understanding here. I think what Jesus says after the statement, you search the scriptures, kind of leans me a little bit in the direction of just Understanding this is Jesus making or voicing an observation about what they do. 
The word search here means more than simply to read. It means to investigate thoroughly, turning over every stone in search of every detail there is to be discovered. And he's saying, that's what you do with the scriptures. And that's a good thing, right? It's a good thing to be a diligent student of the scriptures and to search out the scripture's meaning. And look at their reason for searching the scriptures so studiously. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. On some level, think about what a positive statement this would be as a description of someone. All of us would love for this whole sentence, I think, to describe us. We would want Jesus to say that he observes that we studiously search the scriptures, we study it carefully, and that we've thought deeply about the profit there is to be gained from the scriptures, and that we have concluded that eternal life is to be found in the scriptures. But here's the problem with these religious leaders. They didn't realize from all their study of the scriptures, which today is our Old Testament, what Jesus says at the end of verse 39 when he says, it is these scriptures that testify about me. They had totally missed the fact that the Old Testament scriptures testified about Jesus. Imagine somebody reading a biography on the life of Winston Churchill and they don't realize that the biography is about Winston Churchill. That's what these religious leaders were doing with the Old Testament, completely missing the point that the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures were testifying of Jesus and pointing to him. And Jesus is saying, you have spent decades of your life studying your scriptures, which testify about me and point you to me at every turn. And yet, listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 40, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you might have life. So yes, a person can find eternal life in the Old Testament scriptures, but that life can be gained only by coming to the Christ to whom those scriptures point. And Jesus is saying, and here I am, the Son of God, the Son of Man about whom your scriptures testify. Here I am standing in front of you and talking to you, yet you are unwilling to come to me so that you can have the very eternal life that your scriptures have been pointing you to all along. Well, that leaves us with a question, and that is how could these religious leaders miss the meaning of the Old Testament scriptures in such an appalling way? This leads us to the next pronouncement that Jesus makes to his enemies who wish to kill him. 
Number six, essentially he's going to say, you reject me because you are man pleasers who do not love God. That's your problem. You reject me, not for lack of evidence, but because you are man pleasers who do not love God. For starters, listen to what Jesus says in verse 41. He says, I do not receive glory from men. What he's saying here is, please don't get me wrong or misunderstand me. I'm not trying to get some kind of glory from you men independent of my Father in heaven, nor do I need such glory from you. All I really care about is that I receive glory from my Father in heaven, for it is he whom I love above all. But as for these men that Jesus is talking to in verse 42, Jesus says, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. What an awful thing it must be to have Jesus stand before you and see right into your heart and speak words like these to you. This would be our worst nightmare. We learned at the end of John 2 that Jesus knew all men and knew what was in man. No one needed to tell him what was in man because he knew. And with that knowledge, Jesus looks at these men and says to them, I know you. And I know the truth about what motivates and drives you to do the things that you do. And I know that you do not have love for God in you. That's your problem. Wow. A moment ago, these men thought they were passing judgment on Christ. Yet here he is in total confidence and penetrating insight, standing before them as their judge, passing judgment on them. How does Jesus know that these men do not have love for God in themselves? In verse 43, he says, I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. That's how I know. He's saying, I've come to you from my Father in heaven. I've come to you in the name of my Father in heaven. I do only what he wants me to do that represents his character, and you don't receive me which absolutely means that you don't have love for the Father in you. At the end of verse 43, Jesus makes a soul-shuddering statement. He says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. He's saying to them, if some other Messiah figure shows up, and he is some self-serving man who is all about himself, you will receive that kind of man as your Messiah because such a man is just like you. And sadly, this is exactly what these men and other Jews will go on and do in the decades following this moment, they will reject Jesus as their Messiah. Yet in the decades that followed, 
there will be over 60 Messiah wannabes who will arise and gain followers for themselves from among the Jews. And some of these Messiah figures will lead the Jews in revolts against Rome and ultimately will result in terrible devastation to Jerusalem and the total destruction of the Jerusalem temple. And then even after the carnage of the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in AD 70, there was a man who arose in Israel even after that in the early 130s AD, and he claimed to be the Messiah. And his name was Simon Bar Kokhava. And history tells us that Simon was an effective but ruthless man who rallied around 200,000 Jews to follow him. And part of why people followed him was because he killed those who refused to follow him. And as for those who did join his ranks, Simon required all of his young recruits to sever a finger from one of their hands, which shows the kind of devotion that he demanded and devotion people were willing to give to him. Simon was also an arrogant man who didn't live reliantly on God the Father the way that Jesus did. When going into battle against his enemies, Simon would pray, he would speak to God, and here was his prayer, and I quote, O master of the universe, there is no need for you to assist us, but do not embarrass us either, unquote. That was his prayer. What an arrogant fool this man was. And yet, as he was rising in fame throughout Israel, one of the most famous rabbis in Israel's history Rabbi Akiva believed that Simon was the long-awaited Messiah, and he threw his support behind him, telling people that Simon was the star of Jacob that was promised in Numbers 24, verse 17. And many Jews followed this man in a revolt against Rome and experienced devastating defeat. And here in verse 43, Jesus sees all of that to come and delivers this warning to the men who are rejecting him. He says, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. This is a warning that is destined to come true for these men and for all those who reject Jesus as the Messiah. It's a warning to you as well this morning. As D.A. Carson, the commentator, says, and I quote, the chief judgment on those who deny that Jesus is the promised Messiah is not so much that they have no Messiah, but that they are doomed to follow false messiahs, unquote. And that's true, isn't it? 
If you reject Jesus as your Savior, you will end up believing in some other Savior who is less worthy of your trust than Jesus, even if that Savior happens to be you or some other person or some relationship or thing, and you will end up putting the crushing burden of deity on that other person or thing that you have now forced into the position of Savior in your life. This outcome is 100% unavoidable if you reject Jesus as your Messiah. And this is what Jesus is warning these men about. Those who deny Christ as their God and as their Messiah will end up embracing all sorts of other unworthy Messiahs to serve in his place. And these Messiahs are doomed to let them down and lead them to ruin. As for why these men are not believing in Jesus, Jesus says in verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? This is uh, just an amazing question that Jesus would ask. How can you believe? These men sought glory from one another rather than glory from God. These men, as you read through the four Gospels, you learn that these men cared only about what other people thought about them. They lived for the praise of men. That's why they dressed the way that they did. That's why they had trumpets blowing when they would give their money and their offering to the treasury in Jerusalem. That's why they prayed in public places and why they would put on a gloomy face and let their hair be disheveled on the days that they were fasting for spiritual reasons. Because they wanted to be seen by men and praised by men for their godliness. That's all they craved rather than praise from God. Yet Jesus was not about that kind of stuff at all. Jesus lived for the praise of his Father, even if it meant being rejected by men. And Jesus is saying to these men, not only do you not believe in me, how can you believe when you are preoccupied with getting glory from one another rather than living for the glory of God and seeking glory from him? Well, Jesus could have stopped here, but he's on a roll and he's not finished. And this leads us to the seventh and the final pronouncement that he makes to his enemies who wish to kill him, a pronouncement in which Jesus reaches a devastating crescendo. Number seven, let's word it this way, Moses accuses you for rejecting his testimony about me. That's his seventh pronouncement. It is in these verses where it becomes clear that Jesus has now completely turned the tables on these men. They were earlier condemning Jesus, but now Jesus is pointing to them as condemned. In verse 45, Jesus says, Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. He's saying, You guys claim to follow Moses rather than me. 
actually, the very Moses in whom you have set your hope will be the one who accuses you before the Father on judgment day, and he's accusing you even right now. Why is this so? Jesus says in verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. Jesus is saying, if you really believe the writings of Moses, you would believe me because Moses wrote about me in Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, but you do not really believe Moses' writings and the evidence for the fact that you don't believe Moses' writings is the fact that you refuse to believe in me about whom Moses wrote. Write down some of these references in Genesis 3.15. Moses records that God promised that a champion would arise who is the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 22, God tells Abraham to offer up his only son as a sacrifice, which foreshadows his own giving up of his own son to provide atonement for the sins of the world. In Genesis 22, 14, Abraham names the very mountain upon which Christ would later be crucified, the Lord will provide. In Genesis 22, 17, God promises Abraham that it will be his seed, singular, who will triumph and possess the gate of his enemies. In Genesis 50, 20, God promises that there will arise a royal Messiah from the line of Judah. In Numbers 24, 17, God promises that a star will rise from Jacob who will lead the people of Israel. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, Moses recorded God promising that he would raise up another prophet like Moses for the people to follow. Through the entirety of the sacrificial system, God pointed to the fact that a perfect sacrifice was needed for sin. God even intended that the Sabbath serve as a shadow that points us to Christ and the spiritual rest that believers will find in Him. The commandments and the requirements of the Mosaic law were designed to show us our spiritual poverty and serve as a tutor to bring us to Christ who fulfilled the law for us and who can atone for our sins and violations of the law. On and on the list can go. The pointers to Christ in Moses' writings are so compelling that Jesus says to these men in verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote about me. And given that fact, Jesus ends with a devastating question in verse 47, where he says to these men, but if you do not believe his writings, which you clearly don't, as evidence from the fact that you don't believe me, how will you believe my words? How will you believe my words when I tell you the truth about who I am? And with this question hanging in the air, Jesus drops the microphone. 
And now the burden of response is on these men who stand as condemned defendants before Jesus, the judge. And it is here where we'll stop today. Just some closing thoughts. Some time ago, I was listening to a former atheist share his testimony. And in his testimony, he was talking about how he started reading the Bible uh, in order to critique the Bible. But he said the more he read the Bible, the more he realized that the tables were getting turned on him and that the Bible was critiquing him. And eventually, he began to soften under that critique and began to embrace the Bible's critique of him and began to realize why he needed Jesus Christ so much. A realization that resulted in him soon believing in Jesus and calling upon his name for salvation. I think that's what's happening in this passage, and I think this is what Jesus is after in this text. And he may be after the same thing in your life. The truth is that you cannot truly discover Jesus without embracing his critique of you, which helps you to realize why you need him in the first place. Let's summarize what happens in this passage today. Again, Deuteronomy 19. 15, that we started with, on the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. In the mind of Jesus, there are abundant witnesses to the truth about him, his works, the Father, and the Old Testament scriptures. And then he just throws in John the Baptist saying, I don't need him as a witness, but I'm going to throw him in for your benefit. So he's got three plus witnesses that he is calling to the table in this passage, bearing witness to the truth about him on top of everything that Jesus has been saying about himself. And so the question is, if the evidence is so overwhelming from Jesus and from all of these witnesses, why do these enemies of Jesus not accept Jesus? Why do they not believe in him? You know the answer? Because they could not. And if you read this passage carefully, you realize this is part of Jesus' point. Notice that in our passage today, there are two questions that Jesus asks of these men who were rejecting him. In verse 44, Jesus says to them, How can you believe? How are you able to believe? When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. And then in verse 47, he says, if you do not believe Moses's writings, how will you believe my words? So those are the two questions. How can you believe? He asked in verse 44. And how will you believe? He asked in verse 47. And now we realize that Jesus is not merely indicting these men, 
for not believing in the abundant testimony that has been given to them about him. He's making the point that these men are so lost and so in the grip of unbelief and sin that they cannot believe. And they stood in need of a miracle from God such that they could be raised from spiritual death and actually be rendered able to believe. In other words, at the root of their rejection of Jesus was not an intellectual problem, but a heart problem, a death problem. Their problem is that they were spiritually dead in their sins of selfishness and unbelief. And even Jesus is saying, how can you believe? But wonderfully, Jesus speaks to them in this passage with the intent that his words would help them to see their spiritual poverty. His intention is merciful here, to help them to see their spiritual poverty so that they might see the depths of their helplessness and confess their sin of unbelief and glory-seeking that is keeping them from believing in Christ. If they could simply hear what Jesus is saying and could simply accept Jesus' critique of them and be humbled by this critique, then they perhaps would cry out to Jesus to save them from their unbelief and from their selfish man-pleasing ways. And I think that's what Jesus is after here in this passage. And again, it may be what he's after in your life as well. The Bible teaches us that Jesus wants us all to realize that apart from him, we are spiritually dead and unable to believe in him. And the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of salvation is to realize that truth and to cry out, to him and ask him to deliver us from our unbelief and selfishness and even ask him to enable us to believe in him. It's a heavy thing to have Jesus stand before you and look upon you when you think you're a good and religious person like these men did and have him say to you, how can you believe in me when you don't believe the scriptures the way that you should? How can you believe my words when you are such men-pleasers rather than God-pleasers. But this is what Jesus is saying to these men. And if this is what Jesus is saying to you this morning, come to him and ask him to save you from your unbelief and your man-pleasing ways. Ask him to make you a person who believes God's word and desires glory from God alone. Ask him to save you into faith, to make you spiritually alive and to give you the faith that you so desperately need in order to enter into the fullness of his salvation. And I know that he's a good savior and he would delight to hear such a prayer and just before we pray real quick, if you are a Christian this morning and you have believed in Jesus, be thankful that God has done this miracle in you and brought you to life and saved you into faith. If you believed in Christ, you can't take any credit for that, right? That is a miracle 
of God. And if he has accomplished that miracle in you, don't look down on those who do not believe in him. Give thanks to God for the miracle he has accomplished in you in enabling you to respond to him in faith. And then pray for the people in your life, the people you're burdened about, that God will do this same miracle in them. And then when God does answer that prayer, be sure to give him all of the glory. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord God, we have covered a lot of ground in your word this morning, and in some moments I felt like we've had to fly through the text. Um, but I pray, Lord, that we have looked at enough that you have revealed in these verses to season our understanding of what is entailed in your work of salvation in a person's life. We marvel at the confidence and the wisdom of Jesus who was wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. These men who are persecuting him and wanting to kill him, he, he speaks hard words that no doubt are shaking them to their core. And yet he's telling them, I'm saying what I'm saying because I, I want you to be saved. Give us this same love for those, Lord, that are both lost and even those that persecute us. And help us to realize that we were once persecutors of you, living in rebellion against you, and you, Lord Jesus, reached out to us and you touched us and spoke our name, and we came to life. And we believed, and that was your miracle that you did in us. And we give thanks to you for your work of grace in us. And I so long, Lord, if there's any in this room that are in need of this miracle, that you would touch their hearts and bring them to life today they would come to know what a great Savior you are. And help us, Lord, move by such gratitude to go forth from here, worshiping you, praising you for your grace in our lives, and also ready to declare the truth about you with boldness to others, all the while praying that you will do in them the same miracle that you have done in us. And we'll give you the praise as you may use us and answer such a prayer. We just commit ourselves to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said,